if you turn with me to the book of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. It's printed also in very small print in the bulletin so we can fit it on one page. In Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, the tax collectors and the Pharisees have gathered around to hear Jesus. And Jesus tells a series of stories. And this is probably one of the most well-known stories. Artists throughout centuries, poets throughout centuries, whether they were believers in the faith or not, have written or drawn images or drawn from this particular narrative. And if so, if all these people throughout history are drawing from this narrative, it's probably important for us to look into it. Let's read it. Luke chapter 15, verses 11 to 32. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went out and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has not back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And this is God's word. We're starting a new series with this passage. And we're going to now start talking about the vision of our church. We've never preached the vision of our church. We're now starting to preach the vision of our church. And we're beginning to talk through the core values, the things that we value, the the values that make up Metro Presbyterian Church, the values that drive and power everything that we do and all the decisions that we'll make. And the first and the most important, the all-encompassing value that drives all of our other values is that we are a gospel-centered community. What does that mean? What does it mean to be gospel-centered? Because we talk about the gospel a lot, we mention the gospel a lot, you hear and you read, you go to any church and they're going to talk about the gospel. They're going to say, yes, we are a gospel-centered church. What does that mean? Here's what we mean. The message of the gospel, it penetrates all of our existing views right now, 
All of our understanding about how to approach God, what it means to relate to God, what it means to connect with God, that's what it means. What I'm saying is our approach to God, most of the time, 99% of the time in our lives, even if you've grown up in the church, our approach to God is flawed. Whether you are a skeptic in this room right now or whether you've grown up in the church, the gospel even now applies to you. It applies to me. It applies to you. Now, this passage is the foundational truth. It's the foundational passage on which our church is planted on, believe it or not. So it's a very important passage for us in our community. It's a foundational truth by which um, Metro Presbyterian Church has, has been founded on. And um, so we need to, uh, for me, it's, it's the culmination of 14 years of a spiritual journey, um, really, really coming into understanding and knowing what the gospel really is. On one hand, the gospel is a story. Jesus is telling a story. It's a narrative. And that's absolutely remarkable. You probably don't catch this, but it's really remarkable because what you don't get here as the foundational truth is a set of teachings. I'm not throwing out a set of teachings to you. You're getting a story. And what we're being told is to plug into that story, plug into the narrative, that the center of the Christian faith is not a set of understandings, it's not a set of truths, it's not a set of uh, teachings about how to approach God, but we're taught or we're told to plug into this story, to plug into the overall story of the gospel. So there are three points that we're going to go into for this story. The younger son, the older son, and the greater son. Three sons. The, the younger son, the first son, the second son, the older son, and the third son, the greatest son, the greater son. The younger son is going to teach us about lostness. The older son is going to teach us at least a, a, an ironic twist about what it means to be lost and found. And then the third son is going to teach us about the amazing grace of our Father, the grace of God. First, the younger son. Jesus, verses 1 and 2, we didn't read this, but in verses 1 and 2, He's talking to two different types of people. He's talking to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, the teachers of the law on one hand, and on the other hand, he's talking to the tax collectors. They're gathered together. And the Pharisees, seeing Jesus talking to the tax collectors, he says, this man eats, talks, teaches, sinners. And then Jesus tells a series of stories of which this becomes one of the, probably the most well-known He tells a story. Verses 11 to 12. The parable begins with a younger son. And the younger son approaches his father and he says, and he asks for his, his share, his own share of the inheritance. In Hebrew, uh, in the ancient Hebrew time, if you had a rich family with a large estate, the father would often divide his estate among his sons. Women had no rights back then. So the estate was always divided between the sons. And in this case, he had two sons, so he would divide the state between his two sons. Usually the elder son got anywhere between 60 to 70 to 80 percent of the share, and the younger son got anywhere between 40, 30, 20 percent of the share. That's how it would work. He would divide it up. Um, But while he was still alive, he would live off of the land. He would live off as if it was his property, but it would already be divided between his sons. So it was absolutely unusual for this son, this younger son, to come up to his father and say, I want my share of the inheritance right now. Because what he's really saying is what? I wish you were dead. I wish I can live as if you're already dead. So give me my share right now. And, you know, if, imagine if this were your parents. If it were any other parent of any other culture, you'd get kicked out of the house. But this father is absolutely gracious. 
So gracious. He honors the request. He gives him his share of the inheritance. And what does he do? What does he see? And uh, he goes off and he now spends his money. He goes off to a distant country, it says in verse 13. And he squanders all of his money, his entire share. And uh, it says in, in wild living until all of it's gone. And uh, he's, he's left with nothing. And then what happens? Uh, the famine hits. Who's the younger son? The younger son is the person who wants to go and find himself. He doesn't want to be home. He goes off to find himself. His pursuit is self-discovery. His pursuit is self-potential. His pursuit is to have an individualistic lifestyle. I want to make my life right now. That's what he wants. It's, it's the irreligious person who says, you know, I don't believe that there's a God. I don't believe in God. So if you don't believe in God, then I'm going to determine what's right for myself. I'm going to go out and I'm going to live the way I believe I should live. And so he goes off and he does this. And then the famine comes. The famine, the great famine. Verses 14 to 16. The younger son goes hungry. The text is saying this. Sin is living as if the father has died. Sin is living very, very far from the Father, distant from the Father, even though he's alive, even though he's vibrant. It's living apart from him, being distant from him. Sin is living or searching for a home, trying to make a home for yourself apart from the Father. You're saying, I don't need your security. I don't need your wealth. I don't need your power. I don't need your empowerment. I'm going to go and live my own way, the way I want to live. You're making, you're looking for a home on your own. You're looking for your own life to make a life for yourself. You're looking for a makeshift home. And what are some of our examples? Our examples are, I'm going to go and make my wealth. That's how, that's going to be my home. If I can be rich, then I've arrived. If I can have good relationships, if I can find that one person in my life, I've arrived. I have no other worries. We all have something. We all have many things that are our homes. And if we make those homes apart from the Father, according to this passage, what is it saying? You're distant. And you don't realize, a lot of times it's very subtle, you don't realize how far, because how far you've grown from the Father until what happens? The famine. The famine comes. How do you know that you left home? The famine. I'll give you an example. Anxiety. Anxiety is a a way that we leave home. Anxiety is another example of how we leave home. A lot of our homes are physical things like I want a, I want a career. I want a great job. I want money. I want relationships. I want to be popular. I want acceptance. I want approval. These things are very tangible things that we reside in and we work for and we kind of go off. And these are the things that make us distant from the Father. But the thing is, anxiety is another thing. Fear is what grips you. And worrying is the tool that fear uses to draw you away from the Father because you stop trusting God when you start to have fear. You start, you stop trusting, you grow distant and you start to make a way for yourself. We start to look for our own solutions in life. Anxiety is a way that we leave home. And so how do you know that you left home? Well, the famine comes, the storm comes, the, you know, you become destitute, you become poor. You never, you don't realize what is the purpose of a famine? The famine tells you how far you've gone because you don't realize how helpless you are. You don't realize how poor you are. You don't realize until you've lost everything. And all of a sudden you realize how distant, how far away you've moved. That's what sin, that's what the famine does. The sin, the sins that we followed, it's not so much that money is bad. It's not so much that relationships are bad. They're actually good things, but we've made them the ultimate thing. We've left home. And as a result, what happens is 
these sins promise us an increase in potential. They promise us an increase in freedom, an increase in your options. And yet all of a sudden, when the famine comes, you realize your potential has decreased. You realize your options have decreased. You realize your freedom has decreased. You're left with nothing. That's what the famine does. The famine is what happens after the fun. It happens after all the friends are gone. It happens after all the money's gone. So when you realize you have nothing left for your security, you realize you're totally helpless, where do you turn when the famine hits? We've all experienced it. Where do you turn? Where have you turned in the past when the famine has hit? Either you become, you're going to become less human because that's what sin does. Sin says, I'm going to make you more human if you go my way. Experience life. And then the famine hits and you realize you've become less human. You realize how far you've gone. That's this younger son. You know how you know that? Look at verse 16. In verse 16, he's so poor, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. He's become less human. He's envying the pigs, what they're eating. And then there's an amazing verse, verse 17. It says, when he came to his senses, it's an amazing verse. It's the turning point of his entire text. He comes to his senses, he has, and he has his plan. He says, how rich is my father? You know, my father is so rich, his workers eat, and they have plenty left over. They have room to spare. They have food to spare. And here I am, I'm groveling. I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my father. And I'm going to tell my father, because I've, he knows. He says, I've sinned against heaven, and I've sinned against you. I'm no longer worthy. He says, I, he knows. I'm not worthy to be called your son again anymore. So will you take me back in as a hired man, as a hired hand? Take me back in. Let me work my way back in. That's what he says. He says, verses 18 to 20, he's going to confess. He says, I've sinned against heaven and against you. But the confession shows you how little he knows the heart of his father. He says, make me like your hired hand. Will you take me back in just as a hired hand? Because I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'll work my way back. And this becomes in many ways, the fundamental way that we view our relationship with God. We believe that when we're in guilt, when we're in sin, what do we do? We try to work our way back in. That's what we do. Every one of us has experienced guilt. Every one of us has experienced, at some point in time in our lives, shame. But your instant reaction to that is what? I need to work my way back into God's approval. Repentance is different from confession. Repentance is saying, I don't want to just turn away from the thing that I did. I feel bad for what I've done. I don't want to just turn away from that. I want to turn away from its control in my life. That's repentance. I don't want that thing to control me anymore. This younger person, he knows that at least my father's gracious enough. He'll probably take me back in, but, but he'll never take me back in as a son. So I'll work my way. I'll just work at least for his approval. It's flawed. His, his view of his father is flawed. And, that's, and most of our views of our father in heaven is flawed. But what happens? You can imagine the son. He's rehearsing the story. And, you know, you figure, think about the last time you've done something really, really wrong. And, uh, you know, you're, you have to kind of fess up and approach your parents. What do you expect to hear from your parents? What do you expect to see of your parents? This son is seeing the same thing. He figures it's going to be tons of questions, So he's thinking about it, and he's on his way home. What happens? The father sees the son, verses 20 to 24. And he runs to him. That's remarkable. 
I'm going to explain why, but he runs to his son. It's remarkable for two reasons. One, for a, a father, a rich, wealthy landowner in that day, number one, um, how would he have seen his son? Back then, the wealthiest person in the village would live at the center of the village because it was pretty much his estate. He would live in the center. So here's a son coming in. He would have to have basically stood at the edge of the village or on his roof every day waiting for his son to come home. That's, it's a very undignified thing. You would never see an honored man, a person of respect in that day and age do that. But here he is. He, he sees his son from a distance. So it means he was either on a rooftop or standing at the driveway waiting every day. And then he runs to him. People of respect back then never ran. When's the last time you thought about your parents running to you? It's an undignified act. What's Jesus saying? There is no act of dignity that I would not sacrifice to bring you home. There's no act of dignity that the father would not sacrifice to bring you home, to bring you back in. He runs to him and, and, and the son starts. He starts his confession. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But then he gets cut off. He never gets to finish his speech. The father says, quick. He interrupts. He says, quick, bring him a robe. The best robe, it says. Bring him the ring. Bring him new sandals. Kill the fattened calf. We're going to have a party today for my son, who was lost and is found, whose dead is alive. A celebration takes place. At that moment in time, the son finally starts to realize how loving, how gracious, how safe it is to be in the father's arms. An amazing story. It's only half the story. It's an amazing story. He was expecting the foot tapping. He was expecting the questions. What he got was a robe. What he got was a ring. What he got was new shoes. And then it means he was walking barefoot home. He had nothing. And yet he was welcomed back into the home, despite all that he had done. That's the grace of the father. He was celebrated. Now, the second son. Surprising twist. It's an ironic twist to the story. I used to be taught... Okay, maybe some of you were taught this way in Sunday school. I was taught that younger son, very, very bad. Older son stayed home, obeyed, very, very good. Don't be like the younger son, be like the older son, end of the story, let's pray. That was a story that I was told as a kid growing up. Every year, no matter what. But here, that's not exactly what's going on. If you look at the story, just one layer in. The elder son's out working in the field, it says. Verses 25 to 27, he's working in the field. And he hears the music from a distance. He's working in the field, and he says, you can imagine, you know, the house was probably very empty and very sad while the younger son was away because the father was in that state of waiting. And all of a sudden, the younger son's, the older son's out there working in the field, and he hears this music. He's out there working for his dad. He hears this music. And he says, hey, what's going on? What's, what's with the music? And one of the hired men says, well, your younger brother came home. And there's a huge celebration for him. And the elder son, instead of rejoicing that his brothers come home, what happens? He's upset. He's angry. He won't even enter into the party. It takes the father to come out. The father has to come out and plead with him to enter in. He says, come on, let's go in the party. Let's celebrate. And the younger says, look, 
All these years, I've been slaving for you. He, calls, he doesn't call himself a son. In fact, there's no son language in any of this. He says, I, he says, look. He doesn't say dad, father. He says, look. All these years, I've slaved for you. He calls himself a slave. And he says, this son of yours, not brother, you know, not your son. He says, this son of yours. In other words, he's saying, this guy is not worthy to be your son. He comes home after spending all of your money with prostitutes, all that wild living, and yet you kill the fattened calf for him. I've worked all these years. You've never even given me a young goat to celebrate with my friends. That's what he says. And it's an amazing story. And the reason why it's shocking, because you've got to think about the crowd that was listening to Jesus at the time. The crowd that's listening to Jesus, you've got the Pharisees, the teachers, the religious leaders of the law, and you have, again, the tax collectors. Both of them are shocked. Why? Because if you are a tax collector hearing this story, you're thinking you're the younger son and you're welcome home. You just have to be welcome. You're welcomed back in. Just come back to the Father. But if you are an elder brother, if you are a Pharisee, if you are a tax collector, if you're religious, you're also shocked. Why? Because this story doesn't end for the older son. The younger son got a party. The older son just gets the invitation. Jesus intentionally leaves this story open-ended for the older brother. He says, look, everything I have is yours. Come on in. It doesn't tell you what happened. Jesus leaves it open-ended. Who do you think the story was intended for between the two people, the two crowds? It was for the leaders. It was for the Pharisees. It was for the religious, the people who've grown up in the church, the people who have been Christians all their lives, they say. It's for the people who think they know who say, I know. In fact, all of us here, to some degree, you know, the tax collectors judge the Pharisees. The Pharisees judge the tax collectors. The red states judge the blue states. The blue states judge the red states. It happens all the time. We all, there are always people in this room that we all judge. So either at one point, you're going to be on one party, one side of the fence or the other. But we are one of those two groups of people. And Jesus leaves the story open-ended. This is the subtle, even more deadly way that we often distance ourselves from the Father. It's not through our badness. The badness is obvious. The famine comes, you become poor, destitute. Jesus says, come on in. But here, in this, in this passage, what you see is the, the subtle, more dangerous way that we become distant or become absent from the Father. It's not through our badness, but our goodness. It's not through our disobedience. That's the obvious way the subtle, more dangerous way that we grow distant from the Father is through our obedience, our goodness. Our goodness is just as deadly or sometimes more deadly than our evil, than our sin. In fact, our goodness, depending on what it's centered around, is sinful. It can be sinful. Look at the elder son. The father says, come on in, come in. Jesus is not saying the tax collectors are better. Let's not misunderstand. He's not saying the tax collectors are the better people. He's saying the tax collectors know and they're welcome in and they're able to experience joy because they know. They know their brokenness. But the elder son, they don't. The elder son says, this guy who did all these things and you're welcoming in, that's the reason why they're, uh, they, they don't have joy. They have, they're, they're bitter. They're resentful. They, they're prideful and arrogant. And they don't see their relationship with their father the way it was intended to, to be lived out. They're out there and they say, I'm working in the field for you. I'm doing all these good things for you. I never left home. I'm home. 
What, What the Bible says here is that you can never leave home and yet still be further than if you've left home and come back. That's what he's saying. How do you know that you're being religious? Because all of us at one point in time, even if we've never been in church, we are still religious in some way, shape, or form. We all have ideals and standards and expectations and principles that we hold other people against. No, you've never been frustrated at anybody in your life before? The reason why you are, why why do we get frustrated at other people? Why do we look at people and go, I can't believe he's like that? It's because you're judging them. Why are you judging them? It's because they are not living up to a certain expectation or standard. That's your religiosity. And what Jesus is saying here is that both sons are lost. This title is inappropriately named. It's just the parable of the prodigal son in a lot of our Bibles. But it really should be named the parable of the prodigal sons. They're both lost. One's been found. The other's been invited in. Which one are you? Right now. This parable could have been called the parable of the gracious father because look at the father in all of this. In all this story, the father could have easily said at any point in time, I ought to kick you both out. But instead, he invites both of them in. To the younger son, he says, quick, give him everything. To the older son, he says, my son, everything I have is yours. Come into the party. Experience the party. You've heard me say I love you year in and year out, and yet you've never sang about it. You've never danced to the music. You've heard the lyrics. You've never danced to the music. Rosemary Miller, famous wife, actually, of another famous uh, preacher. In fact, her husband sets the foundation. His vision and uh, his view of the gospel pretty much laid the foundation for our church plan. He passed away in the, in the mid-90s, I believe. But Rosemary Miller, in her 80s, in her mid-80s now, now heading into her late 80s, still touring around the world, speaking and writing books, And this is from her probably most famous book, From Fear to Freedom, it says. This is uh, what she wrote about her own spiritual experience. She wrote, I love to be in control. I am addicted to duty, order, my rights, my ways, and to outward performance. I am outwardly moral, yet inside I am full of anxieties, fears, and guilt. For years I heard the words of the gospel, but I never heard the music. Here's Alan Kraft from a book, Stop Trying Harder. That's the name of the book. Uh, This is what he writes. This describes my early years as a Christian. Earnest, devout, disciplined. I remember my routine as a college student involving fasting once a week, having daily devotional times, and regularly memorizing large portions of scripture, none of which is bad in and of itself. For me, however, I was too spiritually busy to recognize how dry my soul was becoming. My relationship with God was wooden and mechanical as I earnestly focused on one objective, trying very hard to please God by doing the things Christians are supposed to do. This approach can look quite spiritual to those around us. However, it's often rooted in a soul deficiency, a deeply held inner conviction that our worth as a Christian is dependent upon our ability to perform and succeed. Look at the father drawing both sons in. The father, loving both sons, he's mainly what he's saying is, I love you both. I love you both. Both of them deserving to be kicked out, and yet the father draws them both in, into the party. What is the key to our renewal? This is the last point. It's the third son. We need to look to a third son, a greater son than either of those two sons. The elder son, he didn't care about the younger brother. 
he judged the younger brother. When, when, he finally, when, you know, when the younger brother finally came home, the, the uh, older son didn't celebrate. He got more depressed. He got more bitter. He got more resentful. Look at the father, so patient, so kind. He's inviting, reminding the elder son, verses 31 to 32, reminds him of his place in the house. It's an invitation to all of us. Right now, we are tottering or teetering between legalism and licentiousness. Right now. Right now, the moment you leave this church, right, you're going to start to be tempted to either use your goodness to gain acceptance from other people or the Father himself, or to use your badness to pursue your own desires because that's what's going to give you approval. That's what's going to give you joy. It's a promise. It's an empty promise because the famine will come. And where will you turn? Will you turn back to the Father? How do you turn back to the Father? Because the Father says, come inside. Come inside, the Father says. Think about it this way. The younger son, everything that he owned from that point on belonged to who? It belonged to the elder son, right? Because he already had his inheritance and he blew it, gone. Nothing then left in that side that house belonged to him. It all belonged to his older brother. The older brother was a terrible brother, but it all belonged to him. So when the father says, bring him the best robe, whose robe was it? It was the older brother's robe. When he said, get him a ring, whose ring was it? It was the older brother's ring. When he said, get him the sandals, whose sandals were they? It's not like he owned a shoe store. It's his older brother's shoe. He said, kill the fattened calf. Who's that fattened calf meant for? It was meant for the older brother. The older brother was a terrible brother, but the thing is, everything came at his cost. The younger brother got to enjoy entrance back into the home because of the older brother's cost, the older brother's sacrifice. Terrible older brother, but by his sacrifice. Jesus is telling this story to point to himself. He is the greater elder son. He is the the true elder son. Think about it this way. Jesus, he doesn't just stay home, right, while his brother's away and lost. He goes out to find his brother. He goes out to find his lost brother. He leaves home. Not to distance himself from the Father, but because he's close to the Father. In fact, he says, I and the Father are one, and that's why he leaves home. He leaves home. He leaves the comforts of home. He leaves the the goodness of home. When we leave home, we make sure that hotels are booked. We make sure that everything's in place, our transportation, everything. Back then, they didn't have that. There was no travel agency back then. Back then, when you left home, it was less comfortable than where you were. He leaves home. Jesus, the true elder brother, leaves his place in heaven in infinity, comes and becomes a finite person, empties himself of everything that he is and was. And he searches for us in the famine. Wherever we are, whatever we've done, he searches for us. And he doesn't just sacrifice a robe or a pair of sandals or a ring or uh, he doesn't sacrifice uh, the fattened calf. He becomes a sacrifice. On the cross, he sacrifices his identity He sacrifices his royalty. Jesus sacrifices his authority, his power, his glory. And it says here in Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, Hebrews chapter 12, for the joy set before him. In other words, this elder brother, terrible elder brother. Why? Because his younger brother comes home and he's angry. Jesus leaves home to pursue us with joy. He knew everything that was going to happen to them. He knew everything that was going to happen to him on the cross. 
And yet it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning his shame. That's Hebrews chapter 12. And on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, what is he, why have you forsaken me? What is he saying? What is he saying there? He's saying, right now, I'm experiencing famine. I'm experiencing the cosmic separation, what it really means to be completely distanced from the Father. I never wanted to be distant. I never left home. I never ever wanted to leave home. I and the Father are one, and right now on the cross, my Father has forsaken me, meaning that I am cosmically separated. I'm cosmically experiencing the famine. Everything that I had, I've become poor, I've become lost, I've become destitute, I've become forsaken. That's what it said on the cross. The true elder son, he didn't just give up a part of his inheritance for us. He became disowned. Why? So that we become owned by God. He lost his sonship so that we can become sons. He gave up his authority, gave up his power, gave up his sonship. Why? So that we could gain power, so that we could have authority, so that we could have life, so that we could have inheritance. We could be heirs. We can be sons. This makes everything a famine. This makes everything a famine apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, everything is a famine compared to knowing Jesus. That truth can wake us up. It's not only going to challenge the bad things that we do, the bad things, the things that you know you're doing because of selfish reasons, the things you're just pursuing things for your own gain, wealth, power. Even our goodness, the reasons why we're often so good in our lives, it's so that we can gain something, so that we can go to God and say, you owe me now because I've done everything you asked me to do. That's why we get so depressed when things don't go our way. That's why we get so angry when somebody else does better than us. All these things can be challenged because the world says you're doing all these things, you're working to earn a place. Your place is guaranteed. On the cross, Jesus gave up his place. He gave up his place so that you would have a place. He was forsaken. What that means is that I'm no longer known so that you could be known. You could be known by God. You don't have to compare yourself with other people. You are utterly known. You are utterly loved. In Galatians chapter 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul, who was once the highest of the religious order, had forsaken all those things. He said, I, I consider these things rubbish. That's what he says in Philippians chapter 3. But here he says in Galatians chapter 3 and 4, he says, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Intimacy. You can have intimate relationship with the Father. That means when you pray, even when you pray, you don't pray, God, Will you be there for me? You know he's there. And you can say, Father. That's why, what was Jesus's, when, he, when the disciples said, Jesus, teach us how to pray. How did he teach us how to pray? He says, our Father, who art in heaven. Do you see God as your true Father? I hate a lot of modern translations of the Bible. They really weaken certain words. They have a way of weakening certain words. Um, in this, that verse, those verses that I read to you from Galatians 3 and 4, if you read modern translations of the NIV, for instance, like the new version, if you have an older NIV, you know, if you bought it before, like, if you bought your Bible before, like, last year, it's the older version of the NIV. They translate it correctly. It says, you are sons. 
It says, you are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. But if you look at modern versions, to kind of make it more politically correct, what they do is they said, you are, it says, you are sons and daughters, or you are children. And that actually weakens it. You know why? Because if you read that verse politically correct today, back in those days, they would say, are you crazy? If you read, you are sons and daughters, the daughters would say, that sucks, because daughters had no rights. Daughters had no rights. They were not, they were not given any social standing. Paul intentionally says, you are sons. That means today, now, into the Father, we can all be sons. We are all sons. We have that place, that kind of standing. Because the firstborn gave up everything he had so that we could have everything he has. Will you look to the elder son? If you're struggling with guilt, if you're struggling with just losing your way, you haven't found yourself. And a lot of us, that makes us very uncomfortable in our own skins. You feel like life is passing you by sometimes, or you're struggling. You're struggling to keep up with everybody. And you're constantly comparing yourself with other people, whether you are in the church or you've never been to church. We're always comparing ourselves with other people. How we look, how we dress, how smart we are, how good-looking we are, how successful we are. And as you get older, the stakes consistently get higher and higher. That is the, the famine will come. And where will you turn? Will you turn to the elder son, the true elder son, who left home for our sakes to find us, who sacrifices and gives us everything we need? That's the good news. If you still think, well, I need to work to keep up. I need to work for approval. I need to work so that I can be accepted by God. A famine's going to come, and you are going to be so distraught Will you see and remember the image of a father's embrace waiting for you at the driveway, inviting you to come in? That's the image that Jesus wants to give us. At Metro Presbyterian Church, we value the gospel. It's going to drive everything we do. It's going to drive our love for the city. It's going to drive our love for one another. We don't just have community groups here. We do we have community groups, but it's going to be gospel-founded so that we can encourage and truly, truly grow intimately. What that means is we can share our brokenness. We can share our brokenness. Why? Because the one person who's redeemed us has redeemed all of us. That makes us equal. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, will you come into the Father's bosom, feel his embrace in community, Will you draw near to him? That's going to drive everything for us. It's going to change. Grace is going to change everything. It's going to tra- change our politics, our ministry, our deeds, our relationships with one another and our, and our community outside these doors. Will you consider the gospel as you consider this value, our most important value in this church? Let's pray.